welcome to the fifth episode of 13 Ways to Lead with your host, the 13th Command Chief of the Air National Guard, Chief Master Sergeant Maurice Williams. Our featured guest today is the 18th Command Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force Reserve, Chief Master Sergeant Timothy C. White Jr. I'm Master Sergeant Eric Allian, and today we are talking about leading by upholding standards. The culture of any organization is shaped by the worst behavior the leader is willing to tolerate. Good morning, gentlemen. Let's kick off this episode with some introductions. I'm 13th Command Chief of the Air National Guard. I've been through many of these. You know, I think it's all about the guests and get sharing their perspective. So uh, I'll turn it over to my wingman, Chief White, and get, get a little background about yourself. Hey, uh, good morning. So first of all, Mo, hey, man, thanks a lot for uh, having me on. Really appreciate it. It's funny, I was on the way down here, I was, I was thinking uh, 13 ways to lead, why not 12, why not 14? But then 13, that ties into... To, uh, so, I, so I get it now. But uh, yeah, so been in the, uh, been in, the, in, in the uniform for a little over 30, almost 33 years. It'd be 33 and a half by the time I, I leave here uh, late, late summer. Um, grew up as a maintainer by trade, worked on heavies, started on the leadership track probably around 2014 when I took a, uh, a wing uh, command chief spot, and then moved up to the NAV after about three years. Um, did that for about two years over the Fourth Air Force, and then got hired at this position back in 2019. So this is uh, my sunset tour, but I've uh, been loving every piece of it. As a civilian, I'm a supervising uh, law enforcement officer for a law enforcement agency out of the state of California. And actually, I'm on extended military leave. So after I finish my tour here, I'll go back to that, pick up uh, where I left off. Uh, most important thing, uh, married, three beautiful kids. So uh, that's my balance. So in short, that's just a, a little bit about me. Okay, well, great, great, great. You know, uh, as both of us being the senior enlisted leaders of the reserve component within our Air Force, based on um, your scope of responsibility, so, you know, the listening audience will be able to understand uh, how many total wings you got, total airmen, and your scope of responsibility in your current position right now. Yeah, so um, so uh, so the Air Force Reserve, we're basically broken up into three NAVs, and and we also have a headquarters. So we got uh, uh, so we're about uh, total authorization seventy four thousand three hundred. Um, our tenth Air Force handles our CAF portfolio. That's where we have all our fighters, our ISR units, special ops, our cyber intel, uh, space wings currently, and then our fourth Air Force is broken up into our strategic airlift, and that's located out of uh, March Air Force Base. So that's where we do all, of course, our our uh, strategic airlift, refueling, and, and, and that piece is what we do. And 22nd Air Force covers our special missions and tactical airlift, all of our 130s. And we also have, similar to what the, what the Guard does, our firefighting capabilities, aerial spray, and our hurricane hunters. And then we have uh, ARPC, which uh, is our Air Reserve Personnel Center, and that handles um, all of our personnel actions, similar to AFPC. And that's uh, ARPC is a total force um, location. I mean, we've got active guard and reserve working out of the out of the building there. You've been down there, so we've we've met uh, a lot of those folks. And then, of course, our headquarters is uh, down at uh, Warner Robins, Georgia. So that's where we where we sit as a MAGCOM. 
So in this seat, kind of wear two hats. Uh, here in the Pentagon is where I serve as the senior enlisted advisor to the chief of Air Force Reserve, my boss, my wingman, Lieutenant General Scobie. So that's the position that I primarily work at here and we do all our congressional engagements, those type of things. And then as far as um, taking care of the units, the command piece of it is down at headquarters. So I have an office down there that I get down there, not as often as I like, just based on battle rhythm, but then that's where we do the business of running the command. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, I just wanted to uh, really let you expand on that. So, you know, uh, those individuals out there understand your scope of responsibility as we talk about a culture of upholding standards. You know, one of the things that I always uh, talk about, I use 131, one Air Force, three components, but one standards. Now, within the reserve component, our process may differ, be different in how we get there, but we still meet the same standards as our Reg Air brothers. And in your uh, position, what things have you saw that where the process may be different, but we try to get to the same standards as our reg F components? Yeah, you know, so um, like, like you said, three components, one Air Force, one standard. So one of the things that I, I really wanted to take a deliberate approach was on the process, and especially when it comes to enlisted. You know, I uh, when I first took the seat, I had a, a sit down with the chief master sergeant of the Air Force, K. Wright, when he was in the seat. So he he kind of asked me, uh, "Hey, so what is gonna what is gonna gonna be your thing? What's gonna be your goal? What is you know what is it? Uh, it's gonna be your primary focus." I you know I really don't remember I, what I told him, but whatever I told him at the time, he wasn't buying it. And uh, <laughs> and I remember because I really didn't know, but I, I remember. Um, one of the things that he told me, and it stuck with me to the day, he says that, uh, hey, you can spend all your time admiring the pictures on the wall and wondering how you got here and those type of things, but you in the seat now, and what, what are you going to do with it? So I purposely took my time in the seat, and I kind of took a look at it, especially from the enlisted force in what direction I wanted to take the enlisted force. And it really started with us, the senior enlisted. I know for me, prior to me getting here, we really didn't have a road map in place or no guardrails, even for my position. I mean, there were people that applied for my position at the same time that I did that have never even worn the star before, and that was accepted. And that's not anything that you would never see. Uh, AMC command chief never worn a star. You wouldn't see that in ACC, Global Strike, you name it. But it was almost accepted in the reserve just because right. we didn't have a set of standards. We didn't have a deliberate approach to how we do things. And even internally, there's no way that a wing commander, chief of Air Force Reserve, you can become the chief of Air Force Reserve without being a wing commander. So it was even accepted internally. Mm -hmm. So we've set up some standards and working with the chief's group, and it was really about changing the culture. And, and you've probably heard it before. Um, hey, when is the next chief master sergeant in the Air Force going to be a guard? When's the chief master sergeant going to be a reservist? It says, hey, look, we got to look internally. We need to fix some processes internally first. If we want to be taken serious or given serious consideration, 
hey, we need to look at how we do things internally. And it really started with this position, our NAV positions, our wing positions, make sure that we got a set of standards. Because when you talk about from a credibility piece, you know how it is. You sit down at the table with some of our peers. Right. And now, hey, I'm the senior enlisted advisor, the command chief of this command. And man, I've never even wore the star. I don't have any experience. And that's a tough hill for us to climb. So I think just kind of setting that standard, how we view ourselves internally is how others are going to view us externally. And I think that was one of the things that I took a deliberate approach in. I wanted to make sure that I course corrected, that I fixed for anybody that comes in behind me. I think we already got the the framework set up. Yeah, that's what is in in doing that, you know, it, it helps change its culture. Yeah. You know, and culture, it, it takes a little time to yeah. help change that culture, you know, as one of the things that, you know, we're looking at right now, and there's a working group going on uh, that's looking at our distance learning PME. You know, we want a product that's equally to the residence piece because the majority of our listed airmen, they do distance learning based on seat availability, but we don't want to lower the standards of their development as far as our counterparts. I think that's one thing that, you know, we, we, me and you express and got a team together to start building a product that is just as equal on the same platform. You know, one of the things that, you know, uh, when me and you are in the room and you sit and we're sitting around the table, uh, would you share a little bit how you always do that um, example of college degrees and individuals uh, going to college? Yeah, so so what it is is that uh, so if we sit around the the table and that's from the from the chief master sergeant of the air force and and, and pretty much every every MAGCOM, uh, for the most part MAGCOM command chief at the table we all have some form of advanced education whether it's a, a bachelor master's degrees you name it so with the most reservists and guardsmen and especially if you've been in the active component. Um, you you didn't obtain that advanced degree during the traditional brick and mortar. So for right now, if you've obtained an advanced degree, more than likely it was either some type of online or some type of blended environment. That's just the way that today's working adults, they learn now. And if you haven't pursued um, an advanced degree, if you separate, you will obtain advanced degree for the most part for those that do and you will obtain it through some type of distance learning or some type of blended environment. So if that's the way that we learn or we will learn, why are we not doing that now? And there's always this, um, and of course with the, um, I, you know, I don't think that anything will take place of, of the uh, um, in residence piece because, I mean, you get the opportunity to get the chief of staff, the chief master sergeant in the Air Force, sometimes the SECAF will come. And it's in, in more than, in, than anything, that relationship piece. But I, I, but I still think that there's an opportunity for us to take advantage of um, a distance learning, some type of blended environment to where you can either now with the capabilities of what we're doing now with Zoom and, and, and you name it, that we can still, I think, achieve that and um, give our guardsmen and our reservists, because we're the primary customers of that distance learning piece, a similar experience. And so we'll know that we've got a great product 
when the regular component would also um, send their airmen to a distance learning. And and you you complete senior NCO, NCO, and guess what? You don't have an asterisk by your name because it was a distance learning and not the, the in-residence piece. So, so I think that um, um, we, we definitely have to focus on the foundational competencies. We need mm-hmm. to make sure that those are, are molded into the curriculum and we partner with through Global College, through Arizona State University, and we take advantage of that and really give our guardsmen and our reservists an experience that is going to better prepare them to lead, not just checking the box. I can we, we can take this this course today, and I'm going to be promotion uh, eligible, but um, but is that is that our end state or is that our goal or do we want to set them up for success by giving them an experience that they're truly going to grow from? So uh, you, uh, you, me, and uh, AETC, and I know we have the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, uh, Bass, her support, and we just got to, we're working through the process of um, Palm and Ford, getting that in the books uh, because I I think that, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an imperative that that um, that we gotta have, and 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 it can't be something. Um, the current courses was well, is good for the guard and reserve right now, but not really good enough for for the uh, regular component. So if we're going to talk total force, we need to make sure that we deliver a product that um, any component would be willing to take and and that's what we're continuously striving for yeah that is correct you know uh when we got the team together one of the things you know i mentioned hey focus on the product not the cost you know well you just get the product a good product and we'll we'll worry about the cost on the back end you know uh as we move forward in here you know i'm gonna circle back on to something you said during your introduction you know you talked about your civilian um occupation is there anything uh culturally with that you had to adjust in or change within the civilian sector where you work as far as when it deals with standards, especially within law enforcement, because, you know, it it uses the military organizational structure. Is there any culturally things that you had to look and lean and change within your position? Yeah, so um, in law enforcement, it's a paramilitary organization. And... uh, so we we look for I would say the majority of not the majority but a but a large portion are prior service because and then employers that's something that they look for because you understand discipline you understand structure you understand chain of command all those things that works for us in the military the same is in public uh, service or law enforcement in, in particularly but you have culture. And then you have subculture and it's that subculture in any organization that I think is you have the tendency to go astray, if you will. And I've had the ability or the pleasure to work in teams and I work gangs quite a bit. And um, you kind of operate in you, your own boss and you hear a lot about no knock search warrants. Those are the type of things that's in the public eye right now. We served a lot of search warrants. Uh, in, in my tenure, not so many no knockers because those are mostly narcotics teams uh, do those type of warrants. But with gangs, I mean, we would serve search warrants and and it's just you and it's your team. And we would go in where there's contraband involved, whether it's going to be uh, firearms or it's going to be narcotics, um, sometimes a uh, money 
you name it. You know, I um, I told any time that I had a team and I, I would give them the same spiel that if you're going to be a part of this team, then you got to understand this. I will risk my life for anybody on my team. Mm-hmm. That means, hey, if it's a door we got to go through, a firefight that, uh, that we're going to be in, hey, um, it, that's just a part of the business. But I'm not risking my job for nobody. And, and that means that if, if you do something that's immoral, unethical, or legal, then that's something that you are going to have to um, to answer for. So don't put me in a, in a situation. I, I, I can remember, and this was probably around 2010, just a, a, a small example. We had an officer. I'm sitting at my desk like I am here, and, and he comes up and he asks me, hey, Sarge, if somebody turns in, anytime you do, um, any, there's always documentation. There's always report, lost property, found property, you name it, because certainly people have a right to get their property back. So he asked me if uh, if he had to write a report on a, on somebody turning a wallet in, and there's no money in it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's still a found property report, so we still have to turn in. Right. He, he kind of made it seem like that a guy just came in, threw the wallet off in the station, and here you go, here's, here's a wallet, and he turned it in. Well, after I go back to the call, I end up finding out that the RP, the reporting party, actually made multiple attempts to turn in this, this found property, went to a station that was closed down, went to another neighboring city and found out that he needed to turn it in where he turned it in. So I go through it and I'm looking through it. And then I found out, and then he, the, the officer tells me that the wallet that the person belongs to actually had an active warrant for his arrest. So for me, I'm thinking, okay, hey, here's a ruse for us to go tell this guy, hey, we, we, we found your wallet. We're going to give it back to you. But at right. the same time, I'm about to get a bad guy off the street. <laughs> right. So as it turns out, but then at that point, you know, we got to go back and we got to talk to the to the reporting party. Hey, where'd you find it? And those type of things. So it's going to add a, a bunch of questions. Couple days go by, really not thinking about it too much more. And then I happen to, um, when officers turn in a report, there's sometimes a supervisor will go through it and they would, and if there's corrections, we make corrections, give it back to the deputy. So I happen to go into the correction tray and I'm looking at this report that this officer wrote, and all of a sudden he lists that there was money inside the wallet. Mind you, when he turned it in to me, he didn't want to write a report, probably just trying to get out of doing some work. His excuse was there was no money in it. Mm. So as, I, as I'm reading this report, and I, I, it might have been, I don't know, something like $37 or something to that, something small. And so, I, again, I called the RP and I says, hey, you know, you turned in this wallet and was there any money? And he said, yeah, there was X amount of 20, I think, or 10, some odd. Uh, and where was this money located? And he told me it was right there in the center of the billfold, not a uh, hidden compartment or anything. So right then, you know, I knew that I had checked the wallet myself. So right then I knew that I got an officer that has just done something illegal and mm-hmm. it was un, unethical. And then I think tried to cover his tracks. And usually when there is something like that, that's, that's not the first time, nor is it going to be the last time that you would do something like that. So 
Um, I ended up turning in to investigations into our administration and told them what I had found. And there, there was a, a corporal that was also that had witnessed. And I went back and I was says, hey, didn't uh, the deputy say that, you know, there was no money in this wallet? Yeah, absolutely. And so we went through that whole thing. And then he ended up telling me, oh, you know what, by the way, he keeps guns. He keeps guns and he, and he, and he sells them. So we have a, a policy that for whatever reason, if you want to turn in a firearm for you name it, sometimes people pass and, and maybe the spouse or family member want to just get rid of guns or you have to turn in because you, you're prohibited from holding guns. What he was doing mm-hmm. was that he was, he was keeping them for himself instead wow. of them turning them in. And then he was, he was selling them. So then I brought that to the administration's attention as well. And then it was this big old investigation that the department had to do. And I remember that one deputy kind of says, hey, you know, if that grenade goes off, then there's going to be a lot of people that are going to get fragged. And that was his way of telling me that he has sold these guns to <laughs> other deputies and and potentially, mm-hmm. um, you know, my peers. And um, so as it turns out, Big investigation. Uh, this member was ultimately fired, and you understand that that impacts people's lives, their livelihoods, their careers. And then there were other people, other deputies that have purchased weapons, not knowing if, you know, now I don't know if they knew where they got them where from or you name it. Like but still, there were some other people that were impacted by it, and mm-hmm. other careers that were that were either damaged or hurt because uh, they engaged in in that activity. And so then, you know, you're faced with being the, uh, I don't don't know if you wanted to say it was a a whistleblower or not, but it's about doing what's right. Because after that, anytime this particular officer would go on a call, especially if it was an alarm call or an open door, Mm -hmm. and then you know that he's gonna go in somebody's home conducting a search, you know, I, to my mind, I got an officer with sticky fingers and, and can I trust this person? How is this person going to represent the department? Because when something like that happens as a victim, you don't know, is this just this one bad apple, this bad, that going to tarnish the reputation for all officers. And, and, you know, and you hear this thing about, well, it's just a, a bad apple or something to that effect. In law enforcement, that was almost accepted. But hey, man, man, you fly a lot, and could you imagine they jump on the on the PA system and they say, "Hey, well, you know, most of our pilots are good. We got a few bad apples, <laughs> but most of them are good." Hey, is that a plane? Is That's that a, is that, that an aircraft that you're going to? That that is not one that I want to be on. So we got to make sure that we don't. Again, it's that subculture that we set the standards in and call it out when when we see it. And I, I don't know if it was shocking, but a lot of people knew that he was shady. And a lot of people, there was no surprise. I think the morale was more like, well, it was about time. Okay. That um, it was about time that somebody did um, something. Now, there were some, I mean, great cops, good officers that, that probably just, hey, I, I got an opportunity to buy a firearm for half the price that really just made a mistake and got kind of got caught up to it in either promotion, some of those things were delayed. And I, I don't I don't think that he ever told anybody where he was getting these these weapons from. But at the same time, when the corporal told me that uh, 
And I mean, he had never purchased one from somebody, but I mean, it was a known quantity that if you want to get a firearm on the cheap, you go and get it from, from this, from this individual. So, so I think, um, at the, at the time, because there was a, a, a big investigation and some people kind of got caught up into it, I think people were kind of worried what's going to happen to them. But I think that after it was all said and done, I think that everybody knew that it was it was it was the right thing to do. Nobody hates a bad cop more than another cop. Yeah. And and so for the most part, yeah, anytime we have an opportunity and you can and you can really I mean, just just look at, at what happened. Um, nationally over the last few years, uh, most since you and I yeah. even been in the, in the seat, all the things that have, and then um, there, there are officers that again get labeled based on the activities of, you know, one or two. So anytime we have an opportunity to, uh, to weed those two, three out, we need to take advantage of it, even if our department has to take a hit in the interim. And, and that's in the, in the public spear community support you name it i think that there's a healing process that will eventually begin after you after you address the problem the worst thing that we can do is is act like a problem doesn't exist or address it because we don't want to air our dirty laundry and then those things continue to foster right right you know i'm gonna jump to activity that me and you love to do that's go out there and get on that golf course and so even with that if you cheat yourself on the golf course, you're not making yourself better. Hey, if you're not tracking that score, you're not counting each ball. Hey, if you hit a ball in the woods, hey, you, you got to count that drop because, hey, you're playing against yourself. Even though you have other individuals out there, you're trying to bring the best version of you out there on that golf course, you know, and challenging yourself. Because it's, it's one of the mental, mental game and, and very challenging. Because when you get out there with other people, hey, that's when the true t- talent is going to come out. But you got to stay within the rules of golf when you're playing at any time, whether you're playing by yourself or just practicing because you want to exceed to that high level when you're out there in competition. Based on your experience, do you share the same uh, consensus with that? Yeah, man. So first of all, uh, you know, almost had a chance to check your name off the list. You know, I got Ron, you know, I got Ron Bass, <laughs> but I, but I think I think uh, you know after I duffed my tee shot and then I duffed my my second shot, I thought I was completely out of it. And then we we're on the last hole, and I, I'm shooting for ten, and then finding out that you're shooting for ten too, and I think we tied. But um, you know, I kind of gave up on that on that round. I think a, a, a little bit too too early. So a lesson in life: never give up because you just never know what your opponent is is going to do or, or or not do. But you're ex- you're exactly right. I think everybody wants to, and it's something. I mean, we competitive by nature. Anytime we go out. I'm usually the, the worst golfer out there, but I love it and I, and I love the game and, I, and there's a process of discipline. I think that it takes in order for you to get better because you got motivation and you got discipline and you'll see motivation uh, January 1st, New Year's. Everybody are motivated to get in shape and, and those type of things and, and you'll see it, but come March, April, May, hey, so that motivation starts to wean. So if you don't have that discipline and you don't have a process that will keep you going once motivation runs out and then that's where you where you start um, seeing a lack of improvement so just like in golf hey you're absolutely right I can probably say that hey I got a 
bogey when I really got a double or triple because I don't want to be the last person in the group. But are you really getting better? And I think that that is a perfect example. And that's why I love the sport so much because, hey, I'm not competing against you. I'm not competing against you really competing um, against yourself. And what process are you going to have the discipline? If you improve in golf, you're going to improve in life because it's the same discipline in order for you to get better is the same discipline that you got to have in life. When life knocks you down, you got to be committed to get up and put in the work no matter what it is for you to get better. Well, sounds good. You know, that's why I wanted to end on that note on something that we enjoy the most, uh, you know, and hey, in this position right here, I know you'll be leaving out the end of this year here. So, you know, I definitely want to have my best wingman on here with me. It's been a great ride. And, you know, we'll continue to help change the process so we can be at that standard and not have that asterisk on there in everything that we do within the reserve component. That's me and you work together and we change a lot of things in a, you know, I think we made a lot of head ground since both of us been in the seat and moving the ball forward on down the field. I guess I'm a kind of a uh, an analogy guy. So an analogy I think that, that I use when it comes to standards is, is balls and strikes. And so as leaders, we always got to call balls and strikes. It don't matter who's at the plate, whether it's somebody that you like, maybe somebody that you really don't identify with because the moment you start moving the strike zone around uh, because of who's at the plate, that's when we start losing our credibility. So as long as we call them balls and strikes, man, like what you're doing. Uh, appreciate you again being a wingman. And I, and I look forward to uh, putting the checkbox by your name the next time we get out there on the course. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Hey, um, I think he closed it up very well. So, hey, once again, brother, appreciate you being on the show. Appreciate you being just a friend. Thank you, Chief Williams and Chief White, for the outstanding insights on upholding standards. As leaders, we are entrusted with the Air Force's most valuable asset, our people. It is our responsibility to lead and take care of these airmen to ensure that Air Force standards are applied to all. Be sure to follow the Air National Guard on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And for more of Team 13, follow the director of the Air National Guard on Facebook. Join us again next month on 13 Ways to Lead, where we will be talking to the director of the Air National Guard, Lieutenant General Michael Lowe. From all of us here at the ANG Podcast Network, have a great Air National Guard day. Team 13, out. 13 Ways to Lead is produced by Major Amber Schatz. Our editor and sound mixer is Master Sergeant Brandy Fowler. This episode was recorded at the Secretary of the Air Force Public Affairs Studio in the